Today is a emphasis Sunday for us for our Building Faith Initiative. It's a process that we have been on for a couple of years now, uh, relocating in terms of our uh, location. I, I almost hate to hate, hate to use the word relocating our church because our church is where we are, right? That's, uh, we are the church, but we are in the process of trying to uh, you know, move on to our new property. And it's a difficult, difficult process. I mean, we have known from the beginning that this would be a challenge. And we knew it would stretch us in so many ways. It would stretch our leadership. It would stretch our own faith. It would stretch us in terms of sacrifice and the amount of effort that we have to put into it. We, we've, we've known uh, from the beginning that would be the case. But that's no reason not to do something, right? In fact, uh, there were so many compelling reasons as we have launched out on this journey that were gospel-oriented. That, uh, you know, we, as we looked at it uh, as a leadership team, we were just, uh, we were compelled in this direction, not only by way of just ministering to our people, because if, if you were here with us that time, you remember we, one of the things we looked at was just how our, our church building at that point was, was so far removed from the nucleus of where our people lived. And so we were wanting to relocate the building more to a place that would be more accessible to our people uh, and more accessible to others, more visible, obviously, in a, in a beautiful location the Lord has given to us. But we were just excited about ministry. And as we began to think about, and we, had, we knew by personal experience, those of us particularly work around the office during the week, we knew by personal experience how much difficulty people had coming out to us midweek for things like counseling and, and those kinds of ministries. And so we were just excited about being in a location that, that we really felt like uh, along the interstate there would be, be really providing so many ways that we could expand our ministries in counseling and in conferences and in the seminary and in the ladies' ministries that we do and the kind of fellowships that we do, you know, not to mention outreach and benevolence and, and all those things, and then, and then just minister within the body of Christ. And so these were, these were all just wonderful things that we were so excited about uh, uh, seeing happen. And so it's been, it's been a, uh, a journey. We want to say it's been a fun journey all along, you know, just kind of rethinking uh, ministry. Uh, you know, a lot of, I tell people this all the time, that, uh, you know, most churches do get started sort of in a traditional way, and they kind of start off as a church plant, and they build a building, and then they kind of expand the building. But there's really something unique about having been in existence for a while, knowing now, after you have, you know, kind of been doing things for a couple decades, knowing the way that you do ministry, and the, and, and the ebbs and the flows and the styles and all that, and then designing a building from scratch to, to now accommodate what you are as, as a church ministry. And so that's very exciting for us to be able to program a building along those, uh, along those lines. And, and so uh, we're, we're excited to see what the Lord will do you know, through that uh, facility. And also just uh, you know, being able, you know, having uh, been through a building, being able to address what you understand to be some of those uh, needs uh, and, and to be able to just think a building from, from the ground up. So we're certainly excited a, a, about all of those things. Of course, the struggle along the way is that it's a struggle. I mean, the struggle along the way is that none of this is easy. We know it's not easy. And I'm sure some people ask, is it worth it? You know, is it worth all the struggle? I mean, couldn't, couldn't we just, and I mean, honestly, I had, you know, people have said to me in the past, I mean, couldn't we just stay where we are? And, you know, you explain to them, well, we, you know, can't really expand, we can't build, you know, on this property, and we, we can't 
really acquire, uh, it's difficult to acquire property around us or it's really going to be expensive. We have to buy a lot more acreage than we need and all those other kinds of things. You say that to them and they're like, well, I mean, do we, do we have to expand? I mean, can't we just stay like we are? And I, I get it. I understand there's a sort of sense of nostalgia with, uh, you know, the way things used to be. But I, I just, I'm not built that way. I am, I am, I guess you might say, I yearn for people to be exposed to the Word of God. I just, I go to sleep each night and I wake up, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night just praying for various ministries in our church, just thinking because it's always on me. I feel like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 where he says, look, he says, these are my credentials. You want to know why? I'm a real apostle. Let me tell you why. I mean, I got beaten. I was shipwrecked. You know, I spent a night and a day floating out in the ocean, and I'm always attacked by robbers and all that. And then he says at the end of that, he says, that, but really, that's nothing compared to the burden on my heart for churches every day. And I get that. I mean, I don't have as many churches to minister to that Paul had, but I understand that constant burden that's on your heart. I mean, I, I feel that. I want to see people grounded in the truth. I want to see people exposed to the Word of God. It's my joy to see almost every week new people coming to this church and, and just saying, we have just been so thirsty for truth like we're getting here in the Sunday schools and in the church ministry and the kind of worship, God-centered worship and things that are going on. And so I just have a hard time saying, well, please leave. We just don't want it to change. I, I, I am zealous. I might even say jealous. To see more people brought into the kind of biblical worship and discipleship and training that I see taking place here all the time. And so I'm, I, I'm excited about what is happening. In fact, I, I think that that is not really a bizarre thing I actually think that's a biblical thing I actually think that that's something that we're supposed to do and I'll tell you why I think that is because I kind of read a lot about the Apostle Paul and while I'm not the man that he was um, I think I can identify with some of the ways that he was wired he's an interesting thing the Apostle Paul is perhaps the most influential Christian in the history of the church. We could at least say he's the most influential missionary in the history of the church, the Apostle Paul. And yet, you know, all the 2,000 plus years of church history, all the 2,000 years of church history, uh, and all those years... You know, we have all these missionaries, we've got these biographies and all these things. We do not really have a lot of biographical information about Paul. Most important missionary in the history of the church. Did more to, 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 to spread the gospel, impact the, the church probably from a, from a strategic standpoint in the early days than anyone else. And yet the Lord has seemed fit that he would give us snippets along the way. Just little bits, little statements here and there usually tacked on to the beginning or the end of Paul's letters, which admittedly were focused on doctrinal issues. You know, he was always writing about, uh, you know, biblical or 
They are biblical. He wrote the Bible, right? They are doctrinal issues. They're issues of theology. He's writing about those in the truth, in, in the church. But along the way, there were these little notes about his life and his ministry, greetings, brief statements about his travel plans. Barely would fill a page or two if you were to combine them all together throughout the New Testament. And yet, God has inspired them. He has ordained that they be left for us and recorded for us, even these brief statements of the Apostle's life, as a part of Scripture because he knew, like the rest of Scripture, that it would be profitable for you and I to read and to understand something about the life and the heart of this man who was sound-minded in every way in his doctrine and judgment, filled with the Spirit of God, dedicated to the glory of God, and amazingly effective in the ministry that he did in establishing so many churches in so many areas and raising up so many leaders throughout his years. And, and to, 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 I guess, hone in on that, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16. I wanted to talk about our building faith initiative, but, you know, I'm a Bible preacher, so I got to hang it, you know, somewhere. So we're going to hang some thoughts about our, our building faith initiative around some thoughts from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 and about his ministry opportunities. Paul wrote letters to set forth sound doctrine and practice within the church He saw fit to leave us uh, those. But even within that, you have, as I said, these little snippets of his own life and his ministry. And and this is one of them, one of those passages that gives us a peek into the heart and life of of the ministry of Paul. And we read in 1 Corinthians 16, he begins talking about a collection. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there may, may be no collection when I come. In other words, he wants regular collections. He doesn't want occasional collections of offerings. He says in verse 3, when I arrive, I'll send those, uh, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. In verse 5, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. And I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he's doing the Lord's work, as I am. And so let no one despise him. Help him on his way, in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. And now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge you to, urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He'll come when he has opportunity. It's just a, just a few things uh, from this passage that we could highlight. In fact, you may know, some of you may remember, that this was a passage that we looked at uh, the final Sunday of our, before we left the old building. 
This was a passage that I felt like was so applicable to the situation we're in. I wanted to look at it then, and I'm drawn back to it now because there's just some things here that so parallel, I think, what effective ministries do, what, what godly and, and fruitful ministries do, what we're attempting to do as a church through this Building Faith campaign. There are several patterns, we might say, of, of this Apostle Paul's ministry that made him such an effective tool in the Lord's hands. And the first one would be this, the first pattern of Paul's ministry that made him effective was simply vision, vision, or planning, or however you want to call it. And that's simply the fact that the Apostle Paul had a vision of where he wanted to go, of what he wanted to do, of something much grander than where he currently was. As we often say, if you plan, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Well, the Apostle Paul was no failure. He was a person who thought about a year, two years, five years, ten years in advance where he wanted to be where he wanted to go, how he wanted to influence his, his world, and how he wanted to influence the church, and how it needed to be accomplished. And, and so he understood this. He was in Ephesus when he wrote this letter, and there were needs in Ephesus, but he had sent this uh, letter to Corinth, and now he had gotten a response back from them, and he, he had learned that there were all kinds of needs in Corinth as well, and he couldn't just be content to say, well, you know, that's, that's on them. They got their problems I got enough things going on here in Ephesus. I'm just going to kind of just hole up here and, and take care of things here. He wanted to go and he wanted to impact as many of these people as he could. In fact, he, he had some plans not only for Ephesus, not only for Corinth, but also for Rome. He would probably be there in about two years if he could get there, he said. And not only that, he didn't want to just go to Rome. He wanted to go to Spain, which was no man's land in those days, and he knew that that would be a while before he could get there, so he kind of even talks about how he wants to get there, five years, seven years, ten years down the road, but he was planning how he could do all this, how he could pull it off, how he hoped to partner with the people, how he hoped to fund all of these projects, how he hoped to approach each one of these challenges. He even writes to them in this letter saying, look, you know, along the way, we're going to take up an offering so that we can help do something in this ministry in Jerusalem, and this is the way I want you to do it, and this is the way you need to take it up, and, and all these things, and I'm hoping to come. And all. So he's, he's got all of this stuff in his head, and he can see all of these ministry opportunities, and he wants to just get his arms around all of them. He was no small-minded man. He had no small vision for what needed to be accomplished in the kingdom of of God. He was a preacher of truth and he had a passion for people to know the truth and he wanted to get it to as many corners as he possibly could because he was compelled by the needs. He was compelled by the uh, by the, 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 the weaknesses, by the immaturities that he knew were out there and he could not sit content in spite of what had to be enormous challenges. Paul was not the kind who was going to sit back and say, well, someone else needs to do it. Yeah, it's too hard. Someone else needs to do it. Someone else needs to reach those people. Someone else needs to minister to those churches. Someone else needs to disciple those people. 
No, he saw needs, and he formulated a plan in his mind on how to best address those needs. Paul not only saw what needed to be done, but he also thought about how it could be done. He thought about timetables. He thought about how long it would take. He thought about when he would get around to the various places and how he would fund himself along the way. Paul was dependent on the churches for his support. And so whenever he would go, you know, he would have to depend. Like when he went to Corinth, he says, I I wasn't going to take money from the Corinthians. I was going to take it from the Macedonians. And so the Philippians and the Bereans and others would send money to support Paul while he was there. And so he had to arrange all that before he went. That's why we do some of the things we do. We, We make bold moves because we're compelled by the need. We're compelled by the opportunity. We see those needs. But we also know it's going to take time. It's going to take planning. We try to figure out ways to impact for the sake of God's kingdom, to reach the lost, to establish people in sound truth, to raise up new leaders for new generations. All the things that you really see the Apostle Paul doing, those are the things that we're doing. And the reasons being the same. Paul wanted to to do so many of these things. In fact, Look with me if you have your Bibles over to Romans 15. One of my verses I was uh, looking at this week, I'm really drawn to this when Paul says in verse 20 of first, uh, excuse me, Romans 15. We'll get there in a couple years, I mean uh, months in uh, our study of Romans. Romans 15, 20, Paul says, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it, as it is written, those who've never been told of him will see, those who've never heard will understand. Paul had a, an ambition. It's a word that sometimes we think of in the Christian culture as negative, but what's negative is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is what is condemned because it's unchristlike. Those people who are concerned about their own kingdom, their own influence, their own ministry for their own namesake, that's selfish ambition. But Paul had godly ambition. He had ambition to see Christ proclaimed in a way that he needed to be proclaimed, wherever he needed to be proclaimed. And so he says in verse 22, This then is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now since I'm no longer, I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you. Many years. Paul's been thinking about this for a long time. We, we, we can sympathize with him. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. He's talking about financial support. I'm hoping that you'll financially support me to get to the end goal of Spain. And once I've enjoyed your company for, once I've enjoyed your company for a while, he says. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem and bring aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem for they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them. He goes on and explain why, in God's plan, the Gentiles had an obligation to the Jews. And this is, this is the Apostle Paul. He had an ambition. He wanted to do something big for the Lord. He wanted to do it not just in one place. He wanted to do it in as many places as he could conceivably do it. And he wanted to do it because the Lord had laid a, specific, a particular burden on his heart to preach Christ where not, Christ had not been Uh, preached and so he wanted to go you know to these places he wanted to go even to Spain now Spain was not easy territory those days I mean this place had barely been 
we might say civilized for 70 years. I mean, Rome had conquered it, um, but it was still kind of the outland out there. And, and it was still full of bandits and robbers and, and you know, all kinds of, uh, of challenges. And Paul wanted to go there, not because it was an easy place to go. He wanted to go there because there's needs. He wanted to preach for those needs. Someone, I'm sure, came along from time to time and said, Paul, you know, there's, there's so much you can do right here. Why, why bother going over there? But he couldn't, he couldn't stop doing it. I mean, he just compelled by the opportunity. You know, it's interesting that um, it was such a wasteland in the first century when Paul was preaching there. But by the time you move into the second century, Spain actually became one of the strongest arms of the early church. And just think about that. I mean, if Paul had not ventured out on that difficult task, if he had not partnered together with all those churches to accomplish something so far beyond his reach, if you will, if he had not done that, what would the church have been missing in the second century? So Paul, he was a man with vision. Now back over in 1 Corinthians 16, now he's writing this from Ephesus, as I said, and and uh, I, I, I think I have even a fancy map. that I've, There you go. Thank you. Isn't that nice? So you see the little red line there. <clears throat> Paul had a plan uh, that he was going to follow. That He wanted to go see the Corinthians, but instead of just sailing across the Aegean Sea, he would travel up through Macedonia. That would allow him to visit all the churches where he had already visited because he knew that Church ministry wasn't, ha- you know, wasn't a one-time deal. He needed to continue to pour in those churches, very similar to even what you know, I do in Kenya and others people just continue to go back to these places. He would travel through Asia, through Macedonia, Troas, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Now you have to understand, these were places Paul had been before, but they were places he had been run out of. Now, these weren't vacation spots. He, he, some of these places... He had to be let down in the dark of night through the hole in a wall so that he could get out with his life. This was not a guy who was looking for the easy pathway of ministry. But he had a vision. He wanted to go back and he wanted to minister to all these people. So he's going to do all this and he would arrive, he says, in Corinth by winter and stay there through the winter. Uh, Navigation basically shut down from November through early March. And after winter, he would sail to Jerusalem from Corinth And the three to four months would give him sufficient time to address the problems in Corinth and deal with them. Great plan. In fact, um, it's a plan that Paul uh, carried out eventually in uh, Acts 20. But there's a problem. Problem is that previously, in his previous writing, he had actually shared a different plan. He'd actually written to them and said, okay, this is the way it's going to work. I'm going to do this, this, and this. It was different than what he was writing them now. He told them that he would first sail directly across the Aegean Sea, come to them first, then go up the coast, and then come back down the coast and visit them a second time so that they could have profit of ministry and then sail for Judea. Which brings us to the second pattern we find in Paul's ministry. Not only did Paul have vision, but... Paul understood the importance of flexibility in his planning. He says, I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I'll stay with you, even winter with you, so that you may be helped, I may be helped on my journey wherever I will go. 
I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. That's what he's saying to them. But if you have your Bibles, you look right across the page in 2 Corinthians. When they received the letter, it stirred up some issues because now his plans had changed. In fact, it stirred up not only some issues, it stirred up some accusations. The people actually attacked Paul's credibility based on the fact that his ministry plan had changed. And you see it in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 15. Paul says, because of this, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, not after Macedonia. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So that was his original plan. His original plan was to sail across the Aegean, visit with them, go up the coast, come back down, visit them a second time. But his plans had changed. Paul says in verse 17, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Or do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? See, people would come along and say, ah, Paul told us one thing. And see, now he's telling us something else. You, this guy, every time he speaks, he says yes, but he means no. He says one thing out this side of the mouth. He says this out of the other side of the mouth. You can't trust this guy. He just vacillates. Paul says, it's not what I was doing. But he says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. But in Christ, it's always been yes. All the promises of God are yes in him. Paul says, look, basically pointing to the quality of his ministry. He says, you know my ministry, you know my gospel, you know what I preach to you. My preaching to you isn't about the changing plans of God. He says the promises of God are unchangeable. Those those are rock solid. The plans I make, those things might change. And see, effective ministries know this. Effective ministries can grapple with those kinds of things. I mean, we've even talked about it to you this morning. And we, we move forward, and, and as we've said all along throughout our, our process with building faith, we, we make a projection, and then we move forward, and then the, we gather the new data, we assess the data, and then we adjust the plan, but we keep moving forward in the plan that we have. Because good ministries understand the need to constantly do this. We, as Paul says, we don't put our confidence, we don't make our plans according to the flesh. In fact, uh, back over in 1 Corinthians 16, you can even hear this in the Apostle Paul's language. I appreciate Richard Goff is always helping me, you know, reorient my language sometimes whenever we're meeting about this uh, building and using, usually trying to get me to align myself more clearly with this kind of language. You notice in verse 6, when Paul says, perhaps I will stay with you, or even the spinter winter with you. Or, or, or down, he says, uh, later on, you will help me on my way wherever I might go. He's not even saying now where he's going to go. He's just saying wherever it will be, you know, you're going to help me along my way. Or you go down to verse 7, he says, I hope... You know, I, 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 I want to see you just in passing, but I hope to spend the winter with you. Those are words of, of uncertainty, certainly anticipation. And I'll do this, he says in verse 7, if the Lord permits. So this is the way ministries operate. They understand the reality that 
Effective ministry can't sit around until you got everything figured out and only move forward at that point. You're moving forward all the time and you're constantly adjusting whatever circumstances are there and you're constantly comfortable within the sovereignty of God that he is directing your steps. And so everything is always perhaps and if possible and we hope. But those are, those are necessary. And Paul's saying, that's what I do. I'm, I'm, I'm moving forward. I want to do these things, but I'm going to stay flexible. I'm going to stay flexible as the Lord directs, as the Lord moves. Thirdly, thirdly, we can note a pattern of Paul's ministry. It's just the fact that he's faithful in present opportunities. He says there in verse 8, I, I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective ministry is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So this is the Apostle Paul. He had lots of things, you know, that he's trying to accomplish. He had lots of things, uh, two, five, seven, ten years down the road that he, that he saw in his mind needed to be done by the Lord, but it didn't cause him to sit around and do nothing. In fact, he was very busy where he was doing ministry. It wasn't all in the future. He was engaged because why? Because there's so many opportunities where he was. The Lord, he says, had opened for me a door for effective ministry. It's interesting when you do a little study of that language, open, uh, opening a door. It's used a number of places in the New Testament. It's always used in the context of adversaries. Every time Paul talks about it, he, he uses it in the sense that there's someone who's pressing against him or someone who's pressing against the ministry. And so Paul, when he speaks about an open door, he's just simply saying, look, the, uh, the, uh, the adversaries haven't, haven't completely shut us out yet. The Lord has continued to allow us opportunities where we are to minister. He even says there are many adversaries here in Ephesus, and there were many. You have to understand, this was a place of darkness. It was a place of the occult. My kids and I uh, were going through the book of Acts and, and memorizing uh, chapter titles. We all remember Acts 19, um, whenever Paul got to the city of Ephesus. One of the things that uh, I taught them, remember that chapter, was that this was where the Ephesians burned their books. Well, those books were books of sorcery. Books of witchcraft, books of the occult, because the, the word was prevailing in that dark, dark place such that, that the people actually brought their old instruments of the occult to the middle of the city and burned them uh, in the courtyards. So it was powerful work, and, and um, for all the occult, Paul wanted to do, all those wonderful things out there, he realized there was a lot to do right where he was. He wasn't going to sit on his hands until he could get to Rome or until he could get to Spain or all that other stuff. He was busy. And he wasn't busy just because it was easy. In fact, whenever they burned the books, it had a, um, had a ripple effect on the economy. Uh, all the idol trades, uh, the, the trades of, of false idols and all those other things put a dent in the work of the blacksmiths and the goldsmiths and all those other things. So there's a ripple effect in the micro-economy of Ephesus. So originally, Paul's opponents were those who opposed him on religious grounds, and then eventually it was those who opposed him on economic grounds. I mean, they, he, had, he had 
folks coming in from all kinds of different directions, but it didn't matter. It was difficult, is the point. And Paul kept ministering. It was difficult where he was, but it didn't slow him down. He didn't, he didn't sit there and eye the challenges and the difficulties. He just got busy with ministry. He says, I'm going to minister here while I'm here. And while the door's left open, I'm going to minister and do everything I can. Preach the gospel. That's what effective ministries do. They're effective because they are engaged wherever they might be. It's like I told you earlier. You know, we don't know. I mean, maybe the Lord has for us to be in a, 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 a school gym the rest of our days in the church. I don't think that's the case. But if he does, you know, I'm going to minister. We're going to minister here. Because that's what effective ministries do. Paul's um, later in 2 Corinthians 1.9, he talks about his time when he was there in Ephesus talks about time in Asia. He says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. But that makes us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And what a great attitude of ministry. Paul's uh, writing to them in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't let them know. He just says, hey, I'm going to stay here in, or- in, Co- in Ephesus and continue to minister. And then after he leaves, he's reflecting back on that time. He says, oh, by the way, I, I don't want you to un- be unaware of this, but I actually felt like I was in a death sentence every day when I was ministering there. I actually felt like I had been condemned. I mean, there were days it was hanging over me like a cloud. I I walked around thinking that I had been condemned to death. But you know what? That strain and that struggle in the ministry, you know what it did for me? It actually turned me to the Lord who raises people from the dead. Isn't that great? That's great ministry. I want to remember that next time somebody says, you know, the pastor, you know, such and such, this thing I'm going, this is killing me. That's wonderful. Go ahead and let it kill you. God raises people from the dead. I mean, that's, that's a, you talk about an undefeatable personality. That was the Apostle Paul. You just could not defeat this man because his hope was in God. Because his courage was in God. So he understood this. He, he, was, he was going to be busy in ministry wherever he was. And then we could add one more thing. And that's a team spirit. Paul did, did all this, but he knew that it wasn't going to be accomplished just with himself. He knew, he understood with his plans and his agendas and all this other stuff, but that, that not only was it going to take the Lord, but for the ministry to be successful... It was going to take some people around him. And so he, he writes concerning those people. He says, look, when Timothy comes, see, to, uh, see that you put him at ease that he may return to me. He was, a, he, was, he was afraid because Timothy was a timid man. 
We know from 2 Timothy 1, he was a timid man, struggled with that. And he knew that the Corinthian church could be intimidating. I mean, these guys walked around boasting in their knowledge and in their wisdom. And they looked down their nose at people that they felt like didn't have the same kind of knowledge. And so he knew that Timothy could be roughed up a little bit in this environment. So he writes to them. And he wants to make sure they treat Timothy with the proper respect. Timothy is probably in his um, mid-twenties at this point. Eight or nine years later, Paul would write the first epistle to Timothy where people were still looking down Timothy because of his youth. So he's even younger at this point. And the fact that he was so naturally timid and his visit could have been in its discouragement, Paul doesn't want him to despise Timothy, to think of him as inferior. In fact, he says he's doing the work of the Lord just as I am. He says, when you see him, think of me. I mean, we're in this together. And so minister to him as you would to me. Just, just as much as you would to me. So he wants to make sure that those who are around him, because he understands the vital nature of having these co-laborers and these co-workers. And so as he moves forward in his ministry, he wants to He wants to make sure that he's not only equipping, providing, if you might say in this case even protecting those who are serving alongside of him because he understood that as he moved forward and all the plans that he had to do, he was not going to be able to do it alone. He was not going to be able to do it alone. He had to have men like this. He even says in verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. He apparently wanted Apollos to go with Timothy. I wanted him to go to Corinth, but he says, but he did not at all. This was not at all his will to come now. So Paul had other team members that he was trying to marshal in this cause, and some of them didn't always agree with him. Can you imagine that? It's kind of an environment. Paul doesn't take the opportunity to attack him, doesn't take the opportunity to undermine him. In fact, if you remember, Corinth was a place, and it's, it's really awful that the church would fall into this, but there were, there, this is a place where there were actually people in the church who began to say, oh, I'm of Paul. Oh, I'm of Apollos. Oh, I'm of Peter. Church actually aligning themselves under men. And so when Paul gets here at the end of Corinth, he doesn't take the opportunity to undermine Apollos so that he could be the winner of everyone's favor. He's like, no. Look, I, I value Apollos' ministry. He has something to offer. So I encouraged him to go to you. I wanted him to go to you so that you have a benefit. And he didn't desire to do it, but you know what? He's going to come when he has opportunity. He's going to come when he has opportunity. What a wonderful team spirit. It's a man who understood how big things were accomplished for the Lord. They're accomplished with this kind of graciousness, this kind of magnanimous spirit, this kind of involvement of others, this kind of trust uh, for God working even differently through different people. This, This was a godly man. It's not surprising that the Lord used him the way he used him. It's not surprising that he was such an effective man in the lives of so many people, establishing so many churches, grounding them in sound doctrine, raising up and training leaders. Because it wasn't just about doctrine for him. It was about walking out, living out 
is Christian faith, even in these nuts and bolts of ministry. So I, could, I told you, look, I'm, I'm a Bible preacher. I don't really know how to talk about these things without just kind of going through some passage of Scripture that's helpful to me. But it's very helpful to me to have a man like that to follow uh, whose pattern has been set and he can say to us, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's my prayer for us as we move uh, into this process that we also don't make our plans according to the flesh that we also don't become so rigid, so critical, you know, they won't have the flexibility. But also that we don't lose vision. That we don't grow content and just sit back because things are so hard that we're trying to do and think somehow because they're hard they shouldn't be done. No, they'll be hard. But it's so worth doing it. Because so many people still need to be impacted by this truth. They still need to be impacted by the Word of God. I don't know what the Lord will do. There's no guarantee. We we don't know if we'll be here tomorrow. But if we are here tomorrow, I want to be doing everything within my power to make sure the light of the true gospel, of the glory of God, is shining in Cherokee County, in Atlanta, Georgia, in everywhere the Lord would take the ministry of this church. Well, our time is uh, short, so we're going to stand and just close out in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this morning, thankful for the men who are serving us on the Building Faith team, so thankful for how you're guiding and directing our church down this pathway, and Lord, help us to deal with our own impatience and uh, our own flesh and all those things that come along the way. Help us to draw upon the example of the Apostle Paul. Help us, Lord, to be certainly faithful in our planning, but content under your sovereignty and busy in the ministry that you've placed right in front of us. It can be challenging and hard at times. But Lord, that's no reason to grumble, no reason to complain. You have blessed us and called us out of the darkness into your marvelous light. And we don't deserve that. Even now, Lord, we're weak, faltering. Our tongues still uncleansed our hearts not as pure as we'd like our thoughts not as aligned to your word our lives not as conformed to Christ but we're grateful to know that he who began a good work in us is still at work completing it till the day of Christ may you do so in us individually may you do so in us as a church we pray these things in Christ's name Amen